This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Spending time today with one of the all-time greats in stand-up comedy. Known for comedians in cars getting coffee, the B-movie, and the sitcom Seinfeld. On this episode, Jerry shares how he approaches new material like he's viewing it with a drone. And he says to be successful requires you to learn how to be your own boss and employee at the same time. Stay tuned for a serious talk about the funny business with my friend and the fastest joke slinger in the East, Jerry Seinfeld. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la, la 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 la. Hello, Pat. How are you, sir? Nice to be here. I'm very good, thank you. I guess I would love to have you share how important the big pen and the yellow legal pad are to your success. Extremely important. Extremely, extremely important, I would say, honestly. Uh, Because anything that you, any distraction that is removed from the brain, these are my theories on, on creativity, enables the brain to feel free and flow. And that, and that is the goal in, in creativity, is to get your brain into a place where it feels free and can flow. So if your mom says, I'm going out and I'll be back in an hour, but you can, I'm going to leave you here by yourself, your brain immediately lights up like, oh, I can have some fun now because there's one thing less I don't have to think about, that my mom is going to see me doing something I'm not supposed to do and, and going to stop me. So the big pen and the yellow legal pad were two things that I have an affinity for as things. They're very, very, they're excellent objects, uh, which is another side of my brain. My brain loves excellent objects, things that are well-designed, work well, and stay out of your way, you know, and getting you to that place where you're doing what you want to do. So those things are very important to me. Get things out of your way that are distracting. And I know the big pen is a, it really is a flow thing for you because you're working in an analog way where many people have moved to fully digital with the computer. But right. seeing the in the back of your new book, Is This Anything? There's a great picture, and I think it appears in one of your specials, where you're on the street with all your yellow legal pad pages mm-hmm. laid out in your handwriting. And that is really a, a glorious testament No, to the way you write, because I know when we were very early working on Seinfeld and you had your apartment on King's Road, you Mm -hmm. had to put the pad by, you had to go get your cereal and go sit by the computer or something in order to write on the computer, right? There was some kind of a way you had to trick yourself into using the computer at all, or am I wrong about that? 
I never used the computer to write stand-up. Joel Hodgson and I tried, uh, we, we had an early uh, Mac. I don't even know if they were called Mac in those days. That would be like 86. And we, we tried to use that, and that was kind of fun. But that was the only uh, time I ever used one. And that was when you were writing a stand-up confidential or one of those? Yes, yes. But I've used it, you know, I never used it. I read every episode of the Seinfeld series written by hand on a yellow legal pad. And uh, But like the book, for example, that you mentioned, that when I was uh, proofreading that or organizing that, that was all done on a computer. After, though, handwriting, uh, handwriting a lot of sections? No, it was the whole thing. I mean, I gave the pages to an assistant who put them in the computer, and then I edited it from there. So this is a good time, maybe a toast to all those assistants, because I remember you handing pages of yellow legal pad out to the writer's assistants who would write those episodes up, and they would have to decipher sometimes the words and the cross out. But all of that was... You were doing it in the room with yellow legal pads too, right? Yes, and no hats off necessary for those people because as you can imagine, I had a system for doing that that was very organized and it was not difficult. It would say, go to, you know, legal pad, like when we were rewriting the script, it would say, go to with the page number, you know. I like organizing things. You do. You have a system for everything. Yes, for everything because... All creativity, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is, we can put this uh, maybe next to your logo there, which is very nice, by the way. <laughs> all creativity is making order out of chaos. All art is making order out of chaos because life is chaos and art is organized chaos or organized anything. Yeah. So I, I love to systemize. So let's just talk about your system in terms of what you're doing daily. You sit down with no distractions. You don't right. You don't have your cell phone on, taking calls, and you're not mm-hmm. signing autographs on the side. No. Right. You are in the comedy factory riveting these tight one-man submersibles so that you can you know, keep any water from <laughs> leaking in, right? Yeah, right, right. You described it one time to me uh, when we did a gig somewhere – as a rat trap from which the a steel trap from which the audience could not escape. <laughs> that's what the bits were. <laughs> right. So tight. There's so much that I could talk about that's interviewing. That doesn't interest me. It's all those funny little moments when we were somewhere. We were in Texas a few times where the place served Italiachos. Oh, or Italchos, I can't remember. But no, was- they were Italiachos. It was a nacho with an, Ita- with an Italian flair. I think we got there one time when they were no longer serving them. And it was the whole, that's all part of your system is to f- return to the places where the food is glorious and you have a great memory of those. But, th- but there were, there were mishaps. I remember going down to the Irvine improv and you were driving and we stopped for gas. Do you remember this? Of course. We're driving down. We get off somewhere to get yeah. gas. We get back mm-hmm. on and now we're chatting it up. Mm-hmm. Being funny, making fun of billboards, and both of Endlessly. us look up in Long Beach, and we see that the blimp is on the wrong side of the, the Goodyear freeway. blimp, which is was parked in Carson, California, was on the wrong side of the car. Yeah, and we, and we both like, when did they move the hangar 
Like there was a moment where we're like, that's really weird. And what happened was we had gotten on the road the wrong way, going north. The wrong way, yeah. But we were headed to a gig that we were tight to get to. And I remember us going, oh, no. Like we just added 20 minutes to that to that yeah. trip. Now, we did make it on time. But did we have to like run from the car to the stage? Yeah. Is that what happened? Yeah, it was like uh, Batman and Robin going down the yeah. bad pole. Oh, that was so much fun. Let's talk about a... Uh, other parts of your creative process. Okay. Because I, I'm really, um, I, I guess I got a sense one time that you're working a lot in the morning, like before lunch, you're doing a lot of your writing. Otherwise people are robbing you of your time. Like they start to. Well, all most professional writers uh, do work in the morning. And the very simple reason for that is that's when you have the most energy in the day. Um, most people uh, do not uh, appreciate the physical difficulty of writing, the physical challenge. Writing is a physical challenge because using your brain that hard is just as exhausting as exercise or any other physical uh, type work. It's more exhausting, I, I think, than most physical type work. And I remember... I remember early days of writing with Larry and, you know, when you're writing with someone, you can't just put the, the, the work down and go crash on the couch, which, you know, you do when you're writing by yourself, you just, you work until you, and then you just go to the couch and you, and you fall asleep. And I remember, st- I remember one time working with Larry when we were writing the pilot, in fact, and I would become exhausted. And remember, this is also before coffee. I was in my, 30s, I didn't even know about coffee. I didn't know why people drank this strange thing. And I remember staring at the fibers of the carpet, just thinking that's all I want is to put my face on that carpet and just I could just sleep right there on the floor. I just wanted to go to sleep. Part of my creative process is managing physical energy, knowing when and how to work um, and how to rest prior to work. If you're going to work, you know, and I do work sometimes at um, in the afternoons, if the day works out that way, if I can, the only slot I have is like 5 p.m. or even 8 or 9 p.m., I work out how am I going to do it physically? How am I going to do it? You know, I have my uh, transcendental meditation technique that I'm very big on, but that, and that's the greatest creative tool I could give your listeners. Learn to do transcendental meditation because transcendental meditation enables you to in the same way you can just plug in your phone anytime you want and charge it up. You can do that with your brain with TM. You can just stop whatever you're doing, do a TM for 20 minutes and you will have the mental juice to write. If you think you can sit down at 6 PM after dinner and write, you are kidding yourself. It's way too hard. Nothing's going to happen. Yeah. Cause it, t- it takes a lot of, uh, um, man juice. Well, let's say people juice for the, for the people purpose juice. of this it takes man, woman, man, woman juice. So that that's something I learned. These are little things that I learned. They're big things over my many years of teaching myself to work. And this is the secret of my entire success, if, if you want that. The secret of my success is I had to, I very early on appreciated no one cares if I work or don't. I'm all alone here. You stand-up comic, you're alone. 
No one, no one cares if you go to the club. No one cares if you wrote anything today. No one cares if you do anything. You have no supervisors. You have no clock. There's no time card. There's nothing. So how am I going to get any work done with, with no supervision? And that's what I set out to do for many of the early years of my life is figuring out how to get myself to work, to be the boss and the employee at the same time. That's a, that is an excellent, excellent piece of advice, because I will say the reason a lot of people get into comedy is so they don't have to be accountable. Is <laughs> right. so, Like they just make enough money for pot and cable and whatever the yeah. minimum is, right? Yeah. Um, but when you discover that discipline, that the secret to doing it and laying a foundation where they will pay you is that you have to keep constructing a bigger foundation. You always have to be building. I always look at it as a bricklaying when I write a script or something. It's like nobody else is co- going to come and do this structural work. They're not going to get this in place. Right. Or, you know, for me, it's I, I need something to produce. So I have to hire the writer in me. To, to discipline to write it. And then right. once that happens, I could produce like the, the performer is the Yahoo that gets the applause at the end. But yeah. in order for that person to work, all the other parts of you have to be working all the time. Yeah. The, the performer really has the easiest job of anybody. Let's talk about toolkits. Okay. For a comic. Okay. We don't need much. If you look at your tech writer, there's a microphone and there's a bottle of water and there's a stool. But in terms of the the writing skills or the or timing or there's there's specific things which include words. Words are our most important tool. And mm-hmm. getting the right words in the right order, like Merriam Webster wrote all the same stuff you did, just in a different order. <laughs> you know, right. in the unfunny order. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, but in in that way, comedy has Poetry, it has lyric writing because there's a rhythm to it, mm-hmm. right? But An economy to it. A tight economy. The, the one thing above all else, though, is that it is searching for the laughter. And when you write a routine, you're looking for as many of those moments. And so you're looking at it from different angles, points of view. I know that when people do impressions of you, they're always looking at some kind of per- personified. And the doorknob is thinking. Yeah. Like, <laughs> But I think that there are times that you're microscopic, that you mm-hmm. go really in small, and sometimes you get global, like you look at it from the moon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sometimes you're coming at it from the object itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you n- not to say that you do it the same every time? But do you sort of chase through a, a series of perspectives when you're when you're looking at a new subject? I decided one day I wanted a, a pop tart bit because I always loved pop tarts when I was a kid. And I go, I want to do a bit on Pop-Tarts. In fact, I want to do the ultimate bit on Pop-Tarts because I, I know that I had an um, affinity for it that few people have. I really was obsessed with them as a kid. So what happens then, the way I visualize or what you're talking about is um, exactly the way you would think of a drone. A drone can move to any place around the object and look at it. Like you say... How does it look from the moon? How does it look from through a microscope? But the key to it is the freedom of the drone. Let's look at it from here. And now we're going to look at it from here. Now we're going to move it over here. Wherever the joke may be, 
but you keep moving the drone until you see something funny. And then you just collect those. And then after they're collected, you know, I have, I started off with, um, you know, one of the, my first thing was it was, it was what I thought when I first saw it as a kid, because it was different from everything else I had ever seen. So that was my first point of view that I wanted to explore. I said, this was like uh, an alien spaceship, and I felt like a chimp in the dirt playing with a stick. So that I wanted to, I wanted to illuminate how advanced I thought it was in a funny way. So that's just, so then you collect all those ideas and then you organize them in the, in, in the order that is most fun for everything is what's going to be the most fun for the audience to hear. And, and in the construction though, you start with a headline. You say when pop tarts go along, it, it, when you've got the concept of it, it blew the back of your head clean off right. or something yes. like that. Right. Yes. Oh. So, so now it's like they want to get in deeper. Like, what, what is that, right? So that's a that's an, a good door to open, right? For all the angles. And- well, let's start. Let, let's stop right there. That's the first thing: is how you're going to introduce the subject. That's your first creative problem. Don't just say, you know, when I was a kid, I loved pop tarts. That's a waste of a moment. So, a very important thing in my comedy if you look at it, is I, I take the time to find a funny way to bring it up. How are you going to bring it up? Most people, when they want to bring something up, they just bring it up. In comedy, don't waste that. Use that space to do something funny. So I spend a lot of time on that. Like, if I want to talk about something, my first thing is, how are you going to bring it up in a funny way? Don't just bring it up. Because if you do just bring it up, their mood is dropping now in that Four seconds when I could be lifting it. Now it's sagging. You know, it's like a line on a, on a sail on a sailboat. You want to keep them taut. Right. And keep the air. You want a gust of wind in your spinnaker. Mm-hmm. So you're always, I love to talk about sailing when I have no idea what I'm talking about. That's one of my favorite areas. <laughs> Any sort of nautical reference. Yeah, that a I gust have. of wind in your spinnaker is very good. There's another thing that that is very important in the delivery of your comedy, which is nuance and gesture. Mm-hmm. So you probably, from your early days, don't consider yourself to be an actor. In in if anybody knows of your history, having been on Benson, uh, <laughs> which comes up every so often, I'm sure. And I can't imagine at that moment that you were doing a few appearances on Benson that you ever saw yourself having this nine year sitcom and being the central figure in it Um, no no but the reason i bring it up is this you are a very good actor when it relates to telling a story in a comedy routine your economy of gesture well i it it makes me laugh so much whether you're a missing sock on the escape up against the the wall of the dryer or uh what's the one you do where you uh the cell phone is taking your power and you go down on right. one knee and then all the way onto your back. It's, it's so much a part of the story. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a big evolution. You were, you were not as big or as animated as you yeah. are now in the beginning, you were the classic button down comic yes. hidden behind the straight tie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and there wasn't, it was much smaller. Right. And then, and then, I mean, there were so many times that a gesture made all the difference when watching you. Mm-hmm. When I watched the warring tribes with the yo-yos. Right. And 
you talk about them being airborne and somebody throws down the yo-yo and the sound, you know, that sound. And then the slow winding up the string where somebody says, I think I hit the chief. Yeah. When I would tour with you and you would be on stage and sometimes I'd be in the sound booth and I would actually watch your comedy on the LED readout of the sound. Ah. And so it's like, you know, and then it would hit the green mark and then the audience would laugh and it would go. And I was like, wow, there's like a musical pattern to every thing that happens. But the other thing that really I learned from you, I had done a lot of episodic jokes and magic tricks and other things, but the idea that the transition was seamless, that somehow you could go from talking about Bob Hughes, the fattest man in the world, and then something else and the next thing you know, you're a horse hanging from a helicopter. I'm like, how, how did it get here? Right, right. That really made storytelling sort of the bigger part of the picture. Mm-hmm, I, I, mm-hmm. You, you did give me uh, some avuncular advice one time, which I, I thought was very generous, and I think I've come to discover it wasn't, which was that I was at the time had, was doing hat juggling and magic tricks, and you uh, allowed me to open for you for your special at the Roxy. And then I did a few road gigs and you said to me, Hey, just bring a, a suit jacket, just put it in a garment bag, jump on off. You don't have to bring all the prop. You can do stand up. You won't lose your job. You know, just, just try stand up. And I thought, wow, he really believes in me. What I came, I think to discover is that you just didn't want to wait at the baggage claim for my props, but you gave me the permission on one of those things just to go to the microphone without the toys, without the, can a man witch or well the- because you were you were clearly so funny and I thought you could lose those training wheels. I just think it's a more impressive thing to watch from the uh, from the audience's perspective, and uh, if they even think about those things, I don't know. But uh, you were you were so clearly capable of doing that. Um, but no, I didn't care about the baggage claim. Okay, <laughs> okay, <laughs> then 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 I will thank you because it really did change a lot of what my intention was. When I went on The Tonight Show, I didn't go on doing uh, card tricks and rope tricks that I had grown up doing, right? In the the Midwest, in Omaha. But I came to discover that it was much more important to be intimate with my material, to talk Mm -hmm. about things that were truthful and being authentic. To me, if you're observant and if you're listening, I mean, with your kids, there must have been a lot of comedy content that comes just from watching and hearing them and development? Uh, Sure. And anytime you're in a difficult situation, there's something funny there that that can be used. The worse, the better. Uh, The worst thing in comedy is when you become successful at it and you're you're able to eliminate a lot of nuisance. Having some money, you can get rid of a lot of nuisances in your life. And that's the worst thing because the nuisances are where all the good stuff is. There was a comedy lesson we talked about one time, a very long time ago, which is that a comedian says, my car broke down. People are engaged. If the person says, my Porsche broke down, they go, good for that prick. We don't give a right. shit. You know, like yeah. you, you're, that money does become, although you, Rich, Ricky Gervais, many have made it very successful to say, um, yes, it, life sucks, but Less for me now, right? Like that. that yeah. You, yes, uh, yes. It's a different. Right. But they know so much about you that it that it 
it's a different kind of a wink, I think, on the top. Of it. Right. You're a Superman guy. You've always been a Superman guy. Yeah, he's right behind me. Yes, I see him there. We saw him on the set. We see him pop up in different places. He was in American Express commercials with you. But I want to know, what's Jerry Seinfeld's kryptonite? What's your kryptonite? In terms of just life? Yeah, I mean, I, I get a sense it might be chit-chat and boring people. Like, like some of that could drain you. No, I, I've spent so much time doing that, I've actually gotten pretty good at it. When I first got married, my wife, you know, as like any normal person, arranged, you know, social encounters for us, which I had no idea that I was completely incapable of navigating. I had created a life where I only was with comedy people. And, you know, if you're a comedian, it's like, uh, you know, it's like a goldfish. It's easy to hang out with other goldfish. But if you're with some piranha, you know, it's not so easy. So that became another learned technique of how do you talk to a regular person who has interests other than what's funny about this. Right. <laughs> That's all comedians want to do is make fun of things, insult each other, and, uh, and laugh. And regular people, you know, they start out that way as kids and then they lose that ability. So I learned how to do it. And... Um, you can put me in an elevator with anybody and I'm fine now. I don't like it, but I just know how to get the time to go by. I know the questions to ask. I had a, a bit in um, a Comedians in Cars episode where that my technique was ask someone a question to which the answer is a number. Okay. As a, as a way to get through a conversation. So give me an example. You know, how long have you, uh, how long have you lived there? Yeah. You know? And uh, you can think of an endless list of those questions. It's easy to think of those questions. How long have you known that person? How much longer do you think <laughs> you're going to be there? <laughs> it's all just numbers. And, and, and it somehow gets their brain going and gets them talking. And it's not interesting, but it does get you through the conversation. <laughs> so what is my kryptonite, which is a, is a great question. Um. Uh, okay, here's my kryptonite. Okay, now I got the answer for you. Good, I'm ready. YouTube. YouTube. Yeah. I love my YouTube so much. And YouTube loves me so much. And we have a deep, illicit relationship in, in which uh, I know what you like, you know what I like. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's completely, uh, uh, it, it's a sexual fetishism, you know? Um, I happen to be, I happen to be interested in late eighties S class Mercedes diesels right now. So YouTube has gone out into the world and found every late eighties S class Mercedes, Mercedes diesel guy who's interested in that and collected all of that for me. I can't find that on TV, but YouTube can find it for me. So that is my kryptonite. I can understand that. I know that you're a guy that has always love car magazines, whatever. Now they've brought them to life and they're just stuffing them down your throat. Yeah. As, oh, and it, it will never tell you to stop. You have to break it off with that. Like you have to have a breakup with YouTube probably yeah. once a day, right? Yeah. But I, I still love it and I would never get mad at it because television has become so boring to me. And uh, you know what? I, I remember it hit me, Pat. I don't know what year it was. The first time I walked into a hotel room on a gig and didn't turn on the TV immediately. 
Because that's always what you do, right? As soon as you walk in the hotel, I would do it before I would unpack, take my stuff out of the bag. I would turn that TV on, you know, because you're going to watch TV, not going to not watch TV. And uh, so, yeah, that's my kryptonite YouTube. When I was working with you, one of my quick rules I made to myself if I was going to get my work done was I can either watch TV or make TV. I couldn't do both. I couldn't do both at the same time. And that applies to a lot of things. I I remember writing with our mutual friend, Larry Miller. We were working on a song for his show. And I said, Larry, we have to put the phones down. We have to turn the phones off. Well, what if there's an emergency? I go, we'll have to do that after the song. Like, but what if it's my wife or my kids? I go, what what are they used to do? Right. We have to turn it off for an hour. We can't. It doesn't work to be constantly interrupted. Uh, I don't know. I think you have you have a long, uh, great routine about emails and interruptions. But that's like the mailman just running up to you continually. And then, you know, if you're doing it in your car, it's like this just in, this just in. You know, yeah, it, it's mm-hmm. brutal. And and, and also uh, the fact that everything we're so dependent on that device because it is our phone, it is our our typewriter it is our i always the the comic image i always imagine is what if our grand we wouldn't be here if our grandparents had a big typewriter on their lap in the car and a big phone and a big like if they had all that stuff around oh that's funny that's we would go nobody should do that but for some reason we can do it at a stoplight Mm -hmm. we can send mail and take pictures and get a recipe and all of that and oh light's green i you know i'm almost done with my task so um, so that's half of the reason of why everything sucks right now is uh, no one's focused because uh, and the and the other half is the uh, the society that we're living in is uh, boring and so because of its its basic success that that it's, humans are doing really so well right now even even through this pandemic we handled that so well got it done in a year. Um, that, that that's why all the work is boring. The, things have to get much much worse for the art to get better. And don't don't I you think. think though that it stimulated a different part of creativity? For for example, you're putting out this new book, which is uh, the archives of your stand up. What I really like is the little chapter headings, which are a bit of the evolution of who you are, because you started as a single bachelor comic and then you were married and then you had kids and then you're now you have a daughter that's in college and so forth and there is a big evolution between jerry the bachelor and jerry the pet owner yeah like any person yeah but it does i I don't know i was really protective of not exploiting my relationship or my kids at some point and then i realized that's that's all that's happening to me oh my god that's the gold mine my son's are, now, they're old enough, and I, I refer to them as the heirs to the sarcasm fortune um, because that's what they're getting out of this thing. But sometimes they're so wry that they fool me. I think they're saying something stupid, and they're they're actually pimping me. You know, at, at uh, Christmas time when they play a Christmas story for 24 hours on Christmas Eve, I told my son that, and he goes, how slow do they play it? And I'm like, no. <laughs> No, not one time. And, and he just basically hooked me and took me down, you know? How slow did they play it? Yeah. That's great. How old are they now, by uh, the way? Tucker is 20, and he's at college, and uh, Keaton is 18. 
and he has recently graduated from high school. So it is a whole different dynamic now. I mean, I'm still a chef at a fire station just feeding the troops. Between them right. and their friends, I'm always barbecuing something. But right. um, but they're hilarious. Do your kids, did they know when you were little what you did for a living? When they were younger, no. much younger? No, I don't think they did. Because mine, I didn't know that they didn't know <laughs> until Tucker in like first or second grade had a thing where they had to interview a parent to say, what does your dad do for a living sort of thing? Right. right. And uh, I, I remember. Very that, sexist. Well, they, it wasn't that. Pick a parent. And he went to his mom first and she said, I think your dad's job may be more interesting. So he came to me and I said, uh, well, what do you think I do? Okay. Now here's what's funny. Yeah. His perspective is they went with me. They traveled. We would go to aquariums during the day. We would go to the zoo. We would do whatever. Wow. Then at the hotel, I would put them to sleep and I would go to the show, do the show. Right. So I said, what do you think? That do? He goes, well, I know this. You go on vacation a lot. That was one thing. <laughs> and, and I said, well, you've been to the theaters. You know, you know, you can write about something. And so he writes this great little essay, which I don't see until after he's taken it to school and brought it back. And he describes this amazing room at my dad's job. And it's great. They have candy and sodas and you can do whatever you want. And it's called the green room. Like, he was never watching my show. He was just ripping through the snacks, you know. Right. And and that That's was like great. a big deal. But the very last line was sort of the heart string puller where he says, my dad's a comedian. He can make you laugh if you want him to. Uh-huh. That was sort of how he, the essence of the whole thing. That's great. And and then they do they do come along and realize what you're doing. And then they start, I don't know if your kids ever did this, but you're not using this in your routine, dad. Like, they say something and they're like, right, yeah. no, this is off limits. Like, oh, it's so good. Or they go, is this one of your bits? Right. Oh. There's nothing harder than being a professional comedian and being disrespected in your own home. Constantly. Yeah. Oh, do you always have to be funny? I'm like, if somebody's going to pay the mortgage, yes, that's the plan. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, count me in for being funny. Well, are there creative outlets that are not related to writing or come like in, is there art or music or things that like, I know that you mm -hmm. were a jazz listener and other things like that. What kind of music creatively? Um, you I don't use on? music um, to, to uh, get myself going, uh, but I do love it. I, I, I love uh, now I'm, I'm as obsessed with uh, uh, lyrics as ever. You take a song like uh, Mr. Bojangles, and some of the, the power of those lyrics, like he shook back his clothes all around. There's not one unusual word in that. He shook back his clothes all around. It's just a few simple words, but you never heard that before. So when I listen to music now, I listen to mostly uh, Beatles stuff still. I'm really obsessed with the Beatles channel on Sirius XM. I listen to that a lot when I go for drives, when I can, that, that's when I like to listen to music in the car because then I could just listen to it. And I enjoy, I always enjoy the music and driving together. I think that's an amazing combination of things. And um, I just obsess over the quality of great lyrics. And I, I don't listen to, I, I, sometimes I'll listen to the comedy channels and listen to other comedians, but that's, you know, some of it's good. But great songs are always have great writing. 
And uh, that does inspire and excite me, the great writing of lyrics, a crystal blue persuasion, you know. That's a weird group of words. Whoever put those words together? I wonder what he meant by that. I wonder what that refers to. I don't even know. But words to me have music and shape and form and... Uh, Persuasion is a hard, you wouldn't think persuasion would be a good lyric. It's kind of a bumpy word. It's got a lot of syllables in it. And, but uh, so the, I, I love to drive along and listen to uh, music and, and, and analyze the lyrics. Well, lyrics are, uh, where they are very much like comedy is that those words conjure up emotions. They, mm-hmm. in, in the case of a word like persuasion, it scans a certain way when it's sung. Like they, mm-hmm. they decide right. where, and sometimes the sophistication is that the rhyme is a kind of a soft rhyme or there's a grace note or there's something which, which we don't maybe recognize, but it's somehow the relationship between the music and the lyric. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, there's, there's many examples of how the right word is, makes a difference. Um, mm-hmm. And I always used to say that it's the difference between catching the, uh, gravy train and catching the gravy boat. You know, like <laughs> there's a big, there's a big difference. Right. 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 But they're still a mode of transportation. And, right. And, um, yeah. And I, and I learned, I worked on a musical with a guy from a guy named Larry was my composer in uh, New York. And he, he was musical through and through. He was a great uh, writer of music and so forth. And, and only through his, I, the, the music was a mystery to me. I do not know where the music came from. Mm-hmm. You know, we would walk on the street and go, oh, quiet. I got to go to a piano. I go, what? What did you hear? Like, I was just a circus druid. I had no wow. idea what was happening. But lyrics, because of comedy writing, I was able to help with the storytelling and the the point of view and the maybe some comic twist within it. And so it was a really good birthing process. I don't know where the songs... I couldn't write them on my own, but with the guidance of a guy who really served as a lyrical partner, we, there was birth was made to some things that really I'm proud of. And I look at now and I go, Oh, but I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it without him. There was a, uh, there's a a really good doc on, um, on uh, the Bee Gees. I think it's on Showtime and uh, Chris Martin is uh, talks on it. The uh, Coldplay guy. And he says that musicians don't write music. They hear it. Like you were describing that guy walking along, yeah. that he just heard that. And, you know, uh, Paul McCartney famously talks about yesterday he woke up, he had the whole thing, and he thought, I must have heard this somewhere. And comedy's not like that. Comedy, if there's, if something deserves to be made fun of, um, we don't lose that ability to do the surgery to find it. Um, that, that's what I find. Um, but I don't understand the difference. Yeah. Uh, and, but, but I, but anyway, he said that Chris Martin said, you just stop hearing it, which is really kind of a heartbreaking. It, it really is. It's, I, I watched my dad lose his memory and I wondered what it was like to be on the inside of his head during that period of time where he began to lose his memory and the storytelling and all the stuff that I was so enamored by, uh, growing up was my dad doing a slideshow and telling stories about that's your uncle that had one eyebrow. I mean, everything he said riveted me because he somehow connected to the picture, whatever. And it was so tragic to watch 
that element of his personality vanished. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard my dad mess up a joke. My dad was a masterful joke teller. You know, uh, joke jokes, story jokes. And I remember as he got older and he had some health problems, and I remember my kid uh, saw me trip on the stair the other day, and they their head just like, they really, it really upsets them. <laughs> That's it. I was I was trying to kind of run up the stairs, and <laughs> and my toe caught on one of the steps, and he he was sitting there playing a video game, you know, and his head his head just whipped over like what just happened? Yeah. And they know they know on some level they're gonna have to watch you fall apart. Oh. They know it. It's pretty horrible. Well, I know your dad Cal though was a sign. A maker and like an artist, he did made signs and was no, he didn't make them himself. Oh, he didn't. He just owned no, the shop. No. Yeah, right. He owned them and it was his business. But I wonder whether or not that drew you to advertising because I know advertising is something that you're no, no commercials. I love commercials. When I was a kid, I loved them because they were short and they had to be good. And uh, by the way, speaking of which, have you seen the extra gum commercial? No. Oh, tell my me God. about it. They, they, it's really rocketing around. It's long. It's like uh, it's like ninety seconds. I don't think they're running it on TV. They, they must have made. They must have cut a TV version. But it just rocketed around the internet a few days ago, and they made. It's beautiful. It's magnificent. They made a commercial of us, the entire world coming out of the virus, as if it happened overnight. Uh, that's the conceit of the spot. Like. 9 a.m. tomorrow, the virus is 100% over. And even though that isn't really what's happening, that's the conceit of the commercial. And just everyone, how everyone would act. You know, and it's people coming out of doors and going back to work and, and dating. And it's so beautifully executed. My favorite gag is they rush to try and get back to work and there's vines over the doors. <laughs> Uh, of the office buildings and they have to break the vines to get in the doors. And it's, it's, it's so well done though. It's really fun. Yeah. Well, it's become quite competitive marketplace. You've made some great commercials yourself through all of this. And and part of that is Thanks. storytelling, humor, uh, you know, it shares, it rides with the sidecar of the idea of commerce and selling. Yeah. I, I remember working on American Express commercials with you. Mm-hmm. And at that time, maybe Ogilvy Mather or somebody was the ad agency. Yes, and, it was. And they first tried to send you stuff that was funny and uh, that they had written with all the messages. And you go, hey, how about if we just reverse this? How about if we write the funny stuff and you add the 18% revolving debt message <laughs> You know, right. Which which was, a. I mean, I, I got to learn several different parts of the business through being in your satellite. And and to, for that, I'm very grateful. Uh, were you aware, by the way, were you a Mad Men fan? Oh, yeah. The, oh, so, so great. Were you aware that the John Slattery character, uh, Roger Sterling, was taken from a guy that we worked with in those days? No. Who was that? Oh, from was, Ogilvy? Yes. Wow. They took that guy. I don't know how. In fact, I bumped into John Slattery at a party one time. We had a long chat about it. I don't know how they knew that guy, but they took his entire personality and made it that character. But they did it so masterfully. You, so you don't remember 
The guy. I'm not going to mention. I, his I, name. I don't remember the guy, but I I've seen Slattery's performance. I think John's such a talented guy as it is. But oh yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. They took it. The guy that used to was that was that was in charge of us when we made those commercials was that guy. Wow, that's that's really. I mean, it's cool when life becomes fiction and fiction becomes life. You know, like yeah. all the influences. Speaking of. I have to ask you before we run out of time, it has to do with your most recent special, which is uh, 23 Hours to Kill. This super fast, super intriguing opening is tight, and you, where the helicopter flies in, you got the fully orchestrated music, you jump out of the helicopter into the river right, yeah. in a wetsuit, and you walk on stage. I mean, it, it's, it's so urgent. And, and there's this full orchestra on stage of which you immediately drop the curtain on them and boom, you're in. Right. And that is like a super cool way to get going. And, oh, thanks. And then the great part, because I did see you drop in the frame. I'm like, Jerry's dropping out of that helicopter. That I think that was him. And then at the end of the special, I don't think this is a spoiler alert, but it's sure no. fun to see. Is they they reveal you were training and you were jumping off of some high tower with some coach and you I can see the general concern in your face of yes. that you're prepping for it. So did you only do one jump from the helicopter then? I or? did two. Okay. I did two. And at in your sixties, how did that all feel? Like did you feel like that must have been amazing firewalk at that age to go? I can it do this. It was. I was so stupid to not realize. This is not as easy as you think, number one, to jump out of a helicopter five stories off the surface of, of the Hudson River. That's not easy, number one. And number two, when you do that, you think, well, I'm sure when they do these kind of things, there's a stunt coordinator and the, the whole thing is completely locked down and there's really no danger. And and no, you're just in a helicopter, and then there's a boat with a camera on it, and they're going, wait, there's a barge coming. Hold on. Wait till the barge goes by. Okay, you can jump now. And it's just like you're just doing it out in the world, with, and nobody knows if there's a piece of driftwood where you're going to land. <laughs> and it's completely insane. It is completely but insane. I did do it, and I did it because... Um, well, I came up with the title 23 Hours to Kill, and I thought, well, gee, that sounds like a Bond movie. So I sh let's do a Bond opening, because I always wanted to be James Bond like everybody else. And I'm, my favorite James Bond scene is the wetsuit with the tux underneath from, uh, I think it was Thunderball. So that's why I wanted to do it. But when once I committed to it, I didn't want to seem like a chicken and, and chicken out, but I should have chickened out. It was completely insane. And uh, But I'm glad I did it because, and, and this is a good place for us to end, because to become a comedian in my life felt like that. It felt like a jump into the unknown that was so terrifying that I just didn't know if I could do it. But I did do it, and it, of course, ended up making my life. So it was a good metaphor. It was a good visual metaphor for what becoming a comedian was for me. Jumping out of a helicopter into a river. And surviving. Yeah. Right? 
Well, yeah. Jerry, you do prove that the pen is mightier than the sword. Um, <laughs> but let me remind you, with the sword, you've got the reach, I always like to say. Um, <laughs> it was a pleasure to chat with you. I do know there are big moments of inspiration there for writers, comics, and others. And I appreciate you spending a few minutes with me. I miss you, pal. Um, I miss you too. This was really fun. Get back to writing, brother. Get back to writing. All you other uh, comics and artists out there, make sure you write today. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversations and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is a production of Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under Whizbang producer Amanda Rosenberg, with editing by audio aficionado Tony Deo. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. Additional support, courtesy of our creative posse, Delilah Lovejoy, Casey Franco, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's, on Facebook, or by visiting our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. Yeah, you heard that. It's dot fun because dot com is just not fun. Cheers. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call.